Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful for your word. We're grateful for St. Peter's faithfulness. That we get to, a couple thousand years later, benefit from and encourage one another with his teaching. Guide us in your son's name. Amen. Okay, this might be, be, be part of age. Twice, I think, has been in this book. I think twice. I forgot to put the reference at the top of the page, so you have no idea where you are. Except for four Sundays prior, I've been in First Peter. I don't want to hear any complaints. But I did forget. I did forget. So we're finishing off First Peter today, is what we're... Uh, communicating to you. Um, I have a few couple verses at the end of First uh, Peter 4 to remind you it's a what's actually bigger than than those last few verses. Uh, in chapter 3 it says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? But even if you do suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought. And then, verse 12 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you, as though something strange were happening to you. And verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. The the central theme of the book is the church under suffering. Christ's example, the church under suffering in the big picture, like we hear about in the, well, we see in the movies with a Roman theme, the Christians being offered up to the lions. That was a, that was a big persecution. But that wasn't always ongoing. There was a basic, uh, you might say, persecution of life. People didn't like Christians. I read Tacitus on the Christians and you go, oh, not a real great reputation here. He had a very dim view of their atheism as he thought of it as. People that were very annoying. So when he gives us examples, it's not just the state it's also masters who abuse you unjustly. I was, uh, you know, sitting in my library last night because I had been in Spokane and I had been able to sit in my library. So I was in my library last night reading, and I and I had picked up, I think, a book Gun had gotten off. It was my copy of Juvenile, right? I picked up Juvenile and and. Uh, which I know that, that, that has every bit of pretension hung on that as possible to hang on something. I was sitting in my library and picked up Juvenile to read his satires. And Eddie saying, what? This is Idaho, lighten up, Francis. Well, I was there and I was reading it. And I was reading the uh, I've gone first five satires or four. And uh, it was an awful place. Juvenal just has a bee in his bonnet about all the wickedness in Rome. He can't stand women who are uppity. He can't stand the homosexuals. He can't stand the way people go after money all the time. It's a good read. You'll enjoy it. 
But in that world, in a very, very, very wicked world, if you think America's wicked, you got nothing. You know, Rome, it was doing it on, on handstands. And consequently, people who believed in righteousness were not coming up out of an American culture that had always favored Christianity and Protestant Christianity at that, and now it's starting to slip away, we've at least got, you might say, some status quo, you know, standing. Christians then did not. There was no history of Christianity. There was just a bunch of people who insisted on being nice. So people were ticked. Everyone persecuted, everyone. And Peter argues that with the Caesars and with the governors and with the masters and then with the unchristian husbands. So this is broader. Broader than merely political threats. And so we hope you, as you go through, as you go through uh, Peter again, I hope you pull that out, look at it. And so he gets to this end, this last chapter, it's only 14 verses long. Don't get your hopes up. But here at last, he applies himself to instructing the pastors. You guys get to sit back and watch it happen on how you deal with this. So, this is the next verse. The last verse was, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So I exhort the elders among you. They were the natural arrest targets in any situation where political uh, persecution was going to happen. It was the bishops that got arrested. It was the people that were leaders of the group. Makes sense. That's who you should arrest. So he's exhorting the elders regarding persecution as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Now, if you stop and look at this in terms of what we know this book is about, When he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, that is heavy with what he was telling you in this book. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought. Chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So when he says, I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, he has looked at the thing that he wants you to look at. And in some ways, Peter failed in his witness to the sufferings of Christ. Remember the denial of Christ three times, right at the outset of the Lord's uh, Passion. But he's also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Now here is a basic thing that we struggle with because we don't have persecution in this country. No, if they make you make a bake a cake for a gay couple, that's not persecution. I mean, it's a little bit. A little bit of persecution. 
We're not in any big way. They're not arresting the pastors. I, I really don't have to prepare myself yet for this. May come, but at this point, no. But we have to be, you might say, very conscious of the warnings here because even in persecuted circumstances, bad pastors came to the front. Because pastors do what they do for a sense of, it ain't the big bucks, for, for these not locally. You hope to make big bucks eventually. That's what a mega church is all about, right? I don't want to. I, I don't even think I want to know what the salaries are of pastors who serve a big congregation like that. Again, it's just money. But he might be using it for good. What if he gives it away to the needy? That's pretty good. But when Peter says here, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, the glory in the mind of the pastor ought to be the glory coming, the glory hoped in, the glory of Christ, the glory on the last day or at the end of our lives when we're caught up into glory. And as you look at a pastor, because some of you are going to move on get a job someplace, find a church. What's the glory that the pastor you're sitting under has become a partaker of? What is the hope? Something is going to be revealed. He's working towards something. Oh, it's, it's all going to be in Christian terms. It'd be hard to dissect, but watch out for this. With Peter the first pope, has been a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He knows that suffering is a part of this. And, encouragingly, he is willing to go forward in this because he is also a partaker of the glory. So it really matters whether or not the pastor really understands the sufferings. How much do you see... I'm not very much, I'm not a liberal. It's not, I'm not saying this about all liberals, but liberalism is generally adjusting your viewpoints to fit the current um, acceptable behavior. And when you adjust Christianity to uh, adapt itself to current acceptable behavior, you're doing it to avoid at least the negative blowback of the world. What do you mean it is not right for gays to marry? What do you mean it's evil? Like a Nazi evil? Yes, like a Nazi evil. Oh, you can't say that. And a lot of Christians adjust themselves. Not because they really believe that homosexual actions are good and holy, or that they learned it from the scriptures. They have realized where the glory is. They don't share the sufferings of Christ, and they know what glory they seek. The glory that's to be revealed to them is better and better standing in the world. Getting ahead in the world. And that's why he says in the next, tend the flock of God that is in your charge. Stepping by that into a shepherding metaphor. 
That's why we get the word pastor. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not, and this is key. Not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So as you look for pastors in your life, as you recommend churches to others, this is what you're looking for in your pastors. They should understand the sufferings of Christ. They should understand whose glory is to be revealed. What they do, they shouldn't be doing because... They, they, they want to be... They, they should be willing to do it. When it says in the uh, qual uh, qualifications for... Um, where is it? In Timothy? Qualifications for pastor... It says in Timothy 3.1, the saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. The aspiration is noble. It should be something you should want to do. Not grab some guy off the street like the Praetorian Guard, grab Claudius hiding behind a curtain uh, and made him emperor because they thought it would be funny. They don't want... People going, okay, I'll do it. Willingly. Yes, I'll do it. Confidently. I don't know, not just confident, but an eagerness that is not rooted in what you could gain out of a glory that you have planned, moving this into a more expansive, dynamic ministry. The eagerness should not be based on some sort of shameful gain. I don't know how many pastors, you know, usually people who want to be pastors do so willingly, but not eagerly without some sort of measurable gain of either status or of the other desires of the flesh. And if, because it's, and it's not just money, women, and fame, it's what people do with power. And so Peter warns them about that. Not by constraint, not for shameful gain, not as domineering. Not as domineering. One of the hardest things in Christian circles is to come up with a real clue as to what the Lord is teaching in the scriptures and having people gathered together where you're allowed to be speaking and not get all in their business. It's very hard for people who think they have the answers to not try to be Mr. McBossy Pants around you telling you what to do. Graham was sharing with me a few weeks ago about some situation where some Christian just got up in somebody's business they had no business to be in. The person even admitted that it wasn't a moral question, but they had just decided that they were going to rat this person out. It's very hard when you have definite ideas. 
Even you in the pews can get all dominant about what you think when you think something clearly. In a sense, what I want you to say, well, what are we learning this last chapter of Peter? If it's about bishops, I'm not a bishop. Evan, you go deal with this passage in your own life. Well, the problem is there in all of us. It's not merely, oh, I'm not a bishop, so I don't have to. There's something that happens that Peter is teaching here later in the passage that I want you all to understand is natural to Christianity. The key thing that you need to learn about pastors as they do it is they should be willing, eager examples. That that's, they should be showing, if you have an idea that's right, you ought to be made into the kind of person with right ideas. Right? Unless you've got this weird categorical wall between your ideas and your life. If your ideas are good ideas, and you're not a hypocrite, you're actually living by the ideas you pick, your life is your resume about this. Not your argument that you have for your ideas. I have, say, ideas about all sorts of things. The arguments for them. Someone could say, you know, I think you should open an ice cream carton from the end, and I'd say, no, you open it from the side, and I could win that argument. Not because there's a really a true answer. I'm just good at that sort of thing. I know arguments. But we're not allowed to just run our ideas over somebody. As a Christian, there's something about running your ideas through the sieve of your own experience so that your life becomes the exemplar instead of an, abil- uh, an attempt to have a strong argument and a dominating personality telling other people what to do. That's not pastoring. A lot of people, well, he has such strong ideas. He's so good at argument. I should, he, I should let him tell me what to do. They even make appointments with you to have you tell them what to do. But the pastor is supposed to be doing something else. Because if he does this, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd is manifested, you will obtain the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd. And we know that image from John 10. There's a few teachings of Christ that play directly to this. One, John 10, I have it here on the the, uh, left-hand side. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. That's the person who was doing it, not, by, not eagerly, but for shameful gain. Why would he give himself up? He might be one of the best pastors you ever heard. He might have a floppy Bible that when he does the Billy Graham thing, it flop mine does not, by the way. It's too stiff, even after years. You gotta 
You gotta get one of those really thin ones with the rice paper and you could Billy Graham it all day long. He might even have an English accent. You might be constantly blessed every sermon you listen to. And he may run away when it becomes difficult because he's just there because you paid him. That's why you, this basic thing of the idea of the faith has got to first go into the heart and action of the person that's claiming it, whether they're a pastor or not. You, the parishioner, needs to take Christianity and make it something that makes you something? As it says, likewise you that are younger be subject to the elders. Notice how I bolded that one. You want to hear some opinions? Me and my view about what you're doing? Well, see, here's the problem. If I take the whole passage up, the pastor was just said, don't be domineering. Have your more informed ideas affect your life in such a way that people would look at your life and go, yeah, I'd like my life to turn out like that. Or no, not a chance in Hades I want my life to turn out like Evans. In Hebrews, it says, and here I have it on the left-hand side, 13.7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. What? When it tells you, likewise you that are younger, be subject to the elders, what is the subjection? It's not telling you to offer yourself in some cult-like spirit to, to, to entice a pastor to be domineering. For both to work, you have to have pastors being examples of how Christianity works, and parishioners going, yeah, I like that example. I will examine the outcome of his life and imitate his faith. That is the nature of example and imitation. That is the Christian relationship. It's a service relationship. It helps convince you that what Christianity is, is what you desperately want, is to have the right effect in your life. The way you raise your kids, the way you run your family, the way you operate at work, your own sense of peace and joy and love. You want to know how it's gotten. You need to know somebody who's got it. Too often I have heard very domineering men love this passage about the people being subject to the elders. And I would say never subject yourself to someone who is not who asks you to be subject to the word of God, right? Like if I leaned into you, likewise, you that are younger, and you're all younger, except for James. Be subject to the elders. Holy Bible, holy truth. Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, if he doesn't know the verse ahead of it that says someone's not to be domineering over the flock, he doesn't believe in the authority of the scriptures. He believes in the authority of the scriptures for you, but not for him. And consequently, you don't want to have your life end up like that. Never, ever. I don't care how biblical, how on point, how British he sounds. You have got 
to get away from men like that. You put yourself under that kind of leadership and your life will turn out like your leadership. You'll probably be a McBossy pants before long too. Now, the reason is, and this is why I want it to be this com combined effort as you grow in grace, as you're trying to grow in grace as a parishioner of it, whatever churches you go to, Bible studies you go to, that you're approaching the right thing, the right grace, the right hope of glory, the right, not the glory of the church or the glory of the movement or the glory of a doctrine, but the glory of, of God. You, you want to get there, and the pastors want to take the church there. There is a way, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it's not the right way. Clothe yourselves, verse 5, all of you. He just said, pastors, watch yourselves here. Be willing, eager examples. Parishioners, pay attention to that example. Be led by that example. Subject yourself to that example. All of you, parishioners and pastors, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of the things that, that uh, as Leslie and I have gone over things over the years, and especially as we're you know, doing stuff for this child rearing thing in August, one of the basic things that doesn't seem to be a virtue taught or communicated to children, and so people almost don't know what it is, um, is humility. This God opposes the proud or gives grace to the humble. That's out of uh, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, Proverbs 3. I have it here on the left hand side, starting with verse 31. Procure not the reproaches of bad men, neither do thou covet their ways. For every transgressor is unclean before the Lord, neither does he sit among the righteous. The curse of God is in the houses of the ungodly, but the habitations of the just are blessed. The Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He won't find that wording in your Old Testament. That is a Septuagint wording. Um, communicates some, some similar ideas, but not quite the same. Um, but that is central to our faith. I said it a few weeks ago. We're the best people in the world. Jesus Christ has made us the best people in the world. Jesus Christ was the best of the best. He was God on earth. And this God on earth, best of best, making people who are the best of the best, asks all of them to be humble. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility. Because obedience, humility, 
in all authority situations, the offering of subjection. Not because I am, I, I don't have to because I'm better than you. Because I'm better than you, because, as Christ said, I am your master and Lord, and I wash your feet, how much more should you? Because I am better than you, truly, I died on a cross for you. That passage I have up at the top, I didn't mention it when we went through it, Luke twenty-two twenty-five. And he said to them, the kings, this is Christ speaking, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Because in Christianity, who you are being made into is a crucial read that we've got to get off of people. You as the parishioner have got to get it off your pastors from now until the end of the, your life when you go to a church. Are you getting the arrogant? Are you getting the power controlling pastor? Not an eager example of what it is to serve. Not an eager example what it is for the better person to give themselves to others. That's what Christ did. Christ, our example, going through even the worst of possible situations, not in the best possible situations, not when you get to put together, not nothing against this, but say you get to put together a project where you all, wearing the All Souls Christian t-shirts, get to go you know, help an old lady get her fence painted. That's a good thing to do. But we can plan those charitable moments, right? We got the freedom, we got the money, we got the time. But how about how you act when your master beats you unjustly? When your unbelieving husband treats you a certain way? We're called to this humility. In all circumstances. Because our Christ suffered for us. And we have witnessed the sufferings of Christ. How did he do it? He didn't revile in return. How do you function in this world? Would you call it humbling? Verse 6, which is in red. And the only thing in red today. And it's also the memorable verse at the bottom. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. We're not against exaltation. We're not about... That's because Christ was. He was who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He's been placed above all things because of his death. You're told not to avenge yourselves, not because vengeance is wrong, but because it is not yours to avenge yourselves. The Lord will avenge himself. We are to be humble servants of God, to be exalted on some future day. We're not here to say we are not the best people on the planet. We are. Jesus Christ has redeemed us. As you go through your life, you will start to be, if you're obedient to Christ, and you're witnessing, not testifying, but witnessing other people's lives in their homes, 
And you see a family out with little uncontrolled hellions. You realize, yes, Christ has done a wonderful thing in me. We have been made into wonderful things. But being wonderful as a Christian is not like the Gentiles seizing the top spot and getting named benefactor. It is to be a servant. You function as the youngest. And if you're the pastor in that congregation, your labor is to be an example. Cast all of your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. And this is being, when you have great verses like that come through that you'll see on a, you know, your little bread of life loaf that you had growing up, pulling out a single verse, or um, we are in some awful places this week, Hobby Lobby. And Hobby Lobby, as you know, is owned by Christians. God bless them, you know, enjoy forever with them. But all of the posters, plaques, canvases have got parts of verses and of scripture reference, and you're going, that's not what that was about. <laughs> That is just not. But that's how. Cast all your anxieties on him for he cares about you. Uh, this kind of anxiety is a little bit. Um, more concerned with survival. It's not about someone. What well it says here. Uh, be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. How many times have you heard that one? You know, about, about temptation, you know. Drugs or drink or, or sexual immorality, whatever it is. That, that, that the devil is out there. And some of you know my views about the devil, but so this is brought up a lot to me. But this is, this is not a world where just getting drunk's the problem. This is about you getting dead is the problem. And you're willing to testify to Jesus Christ, knowing that death is the upside of that. When it tells you to be sober and watchful, it's not really concerned about the bottle of vodka the devil is pushing on you. It's telling you to be alert to what's going on. Because the enemy, the adversary is seeking you to devour you. This is coming out of all this teaching about how the Christian reacts to persecution at all levels. Then it says, resist him, firm in your faith. Oh, okay, we resist the devil. And we're over here on the personal tempter side of this equation. That, that we got to resist the temptations. I'm not telling you not to resist temptations, but I'm telling you this verse is not about that. This is Lisa. That's where the Hobby Lobby thing came in. Yes. Don't put this verse on a piece of canvas with a soft focus tree behind it. And then the reference, 1 Peter. Resist him, firm in your faith. He is telling people who are not up against drunkenness, but up against deadness. Knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. He's talking about the persecution. 
He's not talking about temptations to sin. You should resist those too, yes, but not from this verse. The devil, the adversary of the church, was after the Christians in those days. The whole church was subject to it. Peter is writing to the exiles of the dispersion. That is back in verse 1 of chapter 1. To the Christians out there that they would understand what is going on and how to think as a Christian regarding persecution. Your anxiousness, your humility. How is your resistance supposed to be expressed? You're supposed to resist him. But just like it tells the the Christian parishioner to submit themselves to their leaders, it's told the leaders to only offer guidance in their example. When I'm told to resist, I'm not told to give the middle finger to Caesar and his minions. Because I'm told to honor them earlier in this book. How is your resistance? Your resistance is with your humility, your faithfulness, and a life that is reflective of the things that Christ taught. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're promised a restoration. We're promised that he is going to exalt us. It really matters what kind of hope you have in Christ. Are you only hoping that your business platform of the church will grow? Your sales of your books more than just, you know, wringing 20 bucks out of somebody for the Pitney Cannon, but real money out of real publishing. Have a TV show broadcast every Sunday morning. We'd have to get a nicer pulpit. What's the revelation of glory? Are we looking forward to the glory that is to be revealed in Christ? Taking our admonition to be free from anxieties because I've cast them upon him. He cares about you. His care for you. He's promised to restore you, to exalt you, to establish and strengthen you. What do you picture that to be? Getting out of the problem, not being killed for the name of Christ. The Christians who were being killed for the name of Christ were being promised that he will restore, establish, and strengthen them. Is it not any fun unless it's here? Where's your hope? Where's the glory? To Christ be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, that last section, the last, not, it's not a benediction. It's a final saying goodbye of Peter. By Silvanus, that's Silas of Paul and Silas fame. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, listen to this, that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Ah, oh, you might want to go back and look over 1 Peter. This is the true grace of God. It's a wonderful book. It, 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 it lands on crucial things of practical living in an unchristian society. 
we're going to be more rapidly devolving into that unchristian society than we might like. But this is the true grace of God that I should stand fast in. When he says, I sort of need to study this, examine what I believe Christianity to be, because there in verse 11 at the end, it says, Amen. I think he just put it in there as, Amen means truly, or verily. You betcha. If you were to say amen to something, the dominion of Christ in your life, if your pastors are to say amen to something, the true dominion of Christ in their lives, what kind of persons ought you to be? That's actually, I think I put out of 2 Peter. Checking this. Yes, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness? and godliness. As this becomes more true, the grace that has come to you, that I'm told to stand fast in, that I'm supposed to go with Peter, amen. This is it. Do I understand what this is? She who was at Babylon, we don't know if that's Babylon, or a city in Egypt, Egyptian delta called Babylon, Rome as Babylon, or Jerusalem as Babylon. We don't know. Is it symbolic or whatever? We don't know if it's a church or if it's a woman, like Peter's wife. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, that makes it sound like it's a church. Because John refers to churches as women in the, in the epistles. Sends you greeting, and so does my son Mark, which gives you the spin, it might be his wife. But it also weirdness about Mark being his son. But remember when he was let out of jail, Peter? Where did he go first? John Mark's mother's house. So maybe he got married to John Mark's mother later on and John Mark became his son. Don't know. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you that are in Christ. You say, well, hold it, Evan. There are two paragraphs below that. No, it's not going to be incrementally wandering our way through Zechariah. And I put the reference there at least. But there was a passage, when I looked, it was looking at John 10, there's also this great passage about the shepherd in Zechariah. And I wanted to read it to you, uh, 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 some parts I've broken out, that, that Zechariah lives out a situation as a shepherd where he represents something. And since you're looking for the kind of faith, wherever you go, in your own living room, if you have a bunch of Christians over, if you end up being a, a, a young pastor in a situation because you're the one that knows most about the scriptures and, and, and you're going to be facing the temptations of being a little power-mad Napoleon, or you're just going to assess somebody else. Zechariah, in chapter 11, said, Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Verse 6, For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, says the Lord. Lo, I will cause men to fall each into the hand of his shepherd, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the earth, and I will deliver none from their hand. Falling into the hand of your shepherd. Bad shepherds 
bad parishioners, bad sheep. It's the punishment for sheep that don't take their role as sheep seriously. Because as soon as you say, I'm going to submit myself, my growth of the Christian life, to people who have lived the Christian life, who's the effect in their life, their wives are happy, their kids are happy. They're not bossing people around. So I became a shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slain for those who trafficked in the sheep. Then I, verse 12, then I said to them, if it seemed he quits, he, he has a, his... He's fed up with the other shepherds. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And this is where it gets interesting. And they weighed out as my wages 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Cast it into the treasury. Ah, this is the Judas Iscariot uh, image, type, prophecy. The lordly price at which I was paid off by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and cast them into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Ever bother you that Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve? He was sent out on the missions of preaching repentance to the people just like the others. Demons were subject to him in Christ's name. And then he took money 30 shekels of silver which he threw back at the treasury when he realized he had delivered up an innocent man but this was all represented beforehand it's one of those situations where we know that people that we have reason to want them to be better than that You're an apostle, right? Jesus picked you. Jesus leads your Bible studies. Okay? You're going to a Bible study. Jesus is the guy leading it. So not only is he a good teacher with an English accent, he made the world. There's that. Understands flat out everything. Has the right eschatology really understands how to deal with people, you go to his Bible study. People have all sorts of ability to, even when they have good leadership, to cast it off, to not. Judas didn't. He didn't see the example of Christ. He didn't imitate the example of Christ. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the implements of a worthless shepherd. For lo, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for the perishing, or seek the wandering, or heal the maimed, or nourish the sound, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. That's what Israel was facing. Shepherds that very obviously caring for the souls of the Israelites, doing them no good. We're not going to have any kind of revival or great leap forward of the faith until the pastors aren't this kind of shepherds. They live by example, and the saints are not looking for popular teachers. 
They're not looking for people who want a following and get you part of a, a group that's going forward. It isn't this exciting. You want to be finding people who in the worst of times will stand by their faith graciously, kindly, lovingly. Their life will be led um, as an example of Jesus Christ, that the sufferings of our Lord set out for us what it's like to be a Christian. Go back over Peter in your free time. Take a look at what it is when he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Sort of admonish yourself regarding these things. Watch out for bad shepherds. Don't ever let a pastor boss you around. What did I just say? Could have ruined it. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We thank you. Keep us um, close to your word as parish and as pastoring, being a benefit to each other as we move forward in the grace that you give each of us and we become benefits to one another. Keep us from going down this path of constraint or gain or authority. Keep us excited about the effect that you have in our lives, that we are changed. And looking to each other and finding the change in each other that we imitate one another. In your son's name, amen.